Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm ready to go forward with the show. Oh, I can tell this is going to be a sensible edition. How did you do it? Um, so uh, Bob Ambrosi is on vacation, although he is here with us in the in a car in the rain in Florida. Uh, so I'm uh, attempting to co-host today. Welcome to this week's Legal Tech Week in Review News and Re- what is it called? Legal Tech Week. <laughs> I'm not the Legal, Tech week, Legal Tech Week. Legal, Legal Tech Week year though, right? No. Yes. Legal Tech. Legal Tech Week. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Bob, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, well, yeah, I'm Bobby. I'm, <laughs> I am Bob Ambrogi, and I'm, I'm broadcasting from the Legal Tech Week mobile studio this week uh, in uh, not too sunny Florida at the moment. And I uh, write the blog Law Sites, and I also have the podcast Law Next. And did I just Joe? break up in the middle of that? No, no, we heard you. Uh, I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law and uh, Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast, which is having its 200th episode next week, I have been informed. So uh, tune in for 200 episodes worth of looking back on regrets that we have throughout the history of that show. Uh, But yeah, no, good to be here. Victoria? Hey, everyone. My name is Victoria Hutchins. I'm based in Philadelphia, and I write for Legal Tech News, which is an ALM publication where I cover primarily cybersecurity, the legal tech industry, and how lawyers are and usually aren't using technology. Steve? Hi, Steve Embry. I publish the blog Tech Law Crossroads, which is about legal innovation, disruption, and uh, legal technology. And I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, where it's cold and we got a lot of snow, which is not good for us. <laughs> How about Victor? Hi, everyone. I'm Victor Lee. I'm assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal. I cover business of law and technology. And um, we got uh, quite a bit of snow over here. Uh, we're definitely not in Cancun. Uh, we have, uh, I think, more coming this weekend. So, you know, looking forward to that. No, we're not, Victor. We're really not. <laughs> Caroline? Uh, just because we're not in Europe anymore, don't leave the Brit out, okay? <laughs> I'm Car- Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider, and we write about legal technology globally, but I'm based in the UK and still living the lockdown dream. Awesome. I'm Molly McDonough. I am a uh, media strategist based in the Chicago area. I produce the show Legal Talk Today. Uh, write for the Legal Talk Network blog. So I'll feature Joe's blog in one of my next roundups uh, when you hit 200. And I also write a blog called Adjust Society. Uh, Bob, do you want to go first since you haven't written anything and you don't have any news to talk about? <laughs> Perfect. I mean, this could be, this whole show could just be the Ron Ponton Memorial Edition uh, uh, of this show. But uh, no, I, you know, I, I have actually been kind of away this week, and uh, I have not been even closely following the legal tech news. I have to admit, but I did. Um, one thing I could talk about is the the uh, Law Next podcast that I put up this week because I thought it was actually kind of interesting. This. A company called Launch Factory. I did an interview with the founder of Launch Factory. uh, And this is a guy who sold his uh, business to Google for $85 million. And then he worked for Google for a couple of years. uh, And he came up with the idea that he wanted to get back into helping to um, uh, seed startups and get get tech startups going. But he, he he felt that where startups most often fail is in the idea that they have, uh, that a lot of people, uh, you know, to get a business going, but they've just got a bad idea. And so his, his whole approach to this is he's put together this team of people who come up with really good ideas or what they hope will be really good ideas for startups. And then they go out and beat the bushes to find founders to kind of take the reins on those startups, uh, and uh, get them going. Uh, and so right this year, this is their third year of doing this and they're getting into legal tech this year. They've got a couple of different ideas for legal tech startups. One is uh, basically a sort of a dispute resolution forum for uh, small claims cases, which I know other people have tried, but uh, 
Uh, they've got a they've got an idea around that, and they've got another one related to cybersecurity. And so what they do is they're kind of holding this competition right now for people who want to be, anybody who wants to be a founder can apply. And they if 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 you kind of win, they team two founders together. They give you three hundred thousand dollars to get you going. Uh, they set you up in an office in San Diego, which is not a bad place to be for a while. Uh, give you mentoring uh, and uh, other kinds of guidance and introductions, uh, and see how it gets going. So I thought it was really an interesting idea. And they're they're big on legal tech right now. They've got some other. They're you know kind of want to see how this goes, but they feel like legal tech is uh, an area where there's just huge potential, huge unrealized potential um, uh, to develop. Uh, and, uh, so they'll see how this first one, first couple ones go, but they'll, they may well get back into it after that. So, so how do they ensure, like, you know, you, some startups, they come up with, a, you, you've got to start from the problem back and make sure that you're solving a real need. And often that comes from having been part of that industry and, you know, how do they make sure that like, the, is it, is it, how, do, how do they connect the two? How do they make sure that they're solving real problems and, and sort of that the, there's a fit you know, I mean, they've got this team, uh, they, they, they're, their ideation team uh, that just does a real, a, a lot of due diligence, a lot of study of different uh, markets and different verticals. And, and they kind of look for where they see a gap and a need uh, and try and uh, come up with a, a product that addresses it. So I mean, they've only been doing, as I say, this is only the third year. So the kind of the third cohort that they'll be doing the first year, I think they only did one startup. The second year was like two or three. So they're really, they don't have a huge track record uh, mm -hmm. yet to go by. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I think it's, I think it's just uh, an interesting approach it's, to it. Maybe not the right approach, but it's interesting. It's really interesting. No, really interesting. I read your piece and I was just thinking, God, you know, I don't know what I thought about it. I thought it was really interesting. And, um and I can see why they're doing it. Um, I guess you just have to make sure you get the right fit. It'd be really fascinating to see what they come up with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd have to listen to the, to the podcast. Actually, uh, that, that sounds like something really interesting. But yeah, I, I guess I guess for me... Wait, are you haven't yet, be, Victor? Sorry. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess the question... My, yeah, my question would be like, what, what, what happens if... I mean, obviously, look, a good idea is a good idea. And like, mm. you know, someone pitches, someone pitches a great you know, a great concept to someone. I mean, you know, even if it's not their idea, if, if it's good enough and it's inspirational enough, then I'm sure they would, you know, do their best to try to bring it to fruition. But I mean, yeah, like, like what if there's a disconnect between like the idea phase and then finding people who, you know, may not be as passionate about it, but they still think, okay, well, I can work with this and see what happens. And then maybe the product and the end product isn't as good, or there's some kind of, you know, miscommunication between, you know, the, you know, the conception and then the execution. So I, I, I guess I'd be interested to, to see what the results are from, yeah. Uh, from from some of the other products that they that they, yeah, that, they created. That's an interesting problem. I mean, they take they take a third interest and they 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 team up. To, they'll find two founders and team them up. And they don't the founders don't have to have applied together. They they find two people that they think would be a right pair to take it. Each of those people get a third. So it's they get a so that the founders have a two thirds interest in it. And supposedly, you know, they're pretty much free to do what they want to do. I mean, they they're owners and, and they get the financing, so they can they can. They don't have to stick to the original idea if they don't want to, if they, if they see a way to vary from it or, or uh, go away from it. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a boost, I guess, an initial boost. Who, who wants to go next? I can go. Victoria, you have that. Yeah, you have the, a, a related topic, the flourishing of alternative legal services providers. Yeah, um, my colleague Dan Packle last week, um, he wrote about the Thomas and Reuters uh, report that they released about ALSPs and the market is growing. Um, and most notable, um, this, the large increases with law firms, captive ALSPs, the ALSPs associated with law firms. And they said, I think I can find the specific uh, statistics. Uh, 77, there's now, what is it, 70. 
Um, there's now 79% of U.S. law firms and 71% of corporations now report that they're using ALSPs compared to 72% and 70% respectively um, two years ago. Um, and I think like Dan, he was talking about the increased usage of it is pretty much spurred by like law firms and corporate legal departments. They have less of a concern of that LSP's quality isn't as good. Like they can pretty much figure out like, okay, they're the same quality of a law firm, but you know, maybe their workflow is a little bit different and most likely they're um, more efficient and cheaper. And they, the article, well, the report also found that captive LSPs, there more of them are uh, joining the uh, market. And it's a little bit difficult to kind of distinguish like when a, AL, when a law firm has an LSP, but the report said that it seems like they're having the um, uh, uh, sharpest growth. And I thought it was interesting just to see like, of course, like some people say like, hey, some corporations maybe aren't sophisticated enough and they maybe just turn always to law firms for their needs. But I do think kind of like ALSPs aren't going anywhere. And this report is just highlighting that um, concept that ALSPs, they are really a contender for providing some legal services. And law firms, I think they kind of understand like, hey, they're not going anywhere. And you even see, you know, law firms creating the, these ALSPs or they're even introducing these ALSPs to their clients saying, hey, they can offer these services for some of these. They can maybe provide like the large scale document review that we maybe have for some of our projects. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Like it's not um, one of the things we talk about a lot when we talk about technology is, you know, when to draw the line on what you do yourself and what you let others do. And it, at some point in in uh, legal services, that's becoming an issue. That's becoming part of the equation as you kind of develop a more holistic approach to your business model. So it doesn't make sense to create everything from scratch. To me, I mean, it, this makes sense to me that this will continue to grow, um, and that law law firms, even traditional firms, will use these services without reinventing the wheel each time. And it makes sense from, from you know, we talked about it before from a from a the way they bill, you know, the, the freedom they have away from the billable hour, it's, it's a to me, it's a no-brainer, right? Like that we we so technology when it bashes up against the billable hour, efficiency and the billable hour aren't necessarily best of friends. Whereas if you put it within the context of an ALSP, it has much more freedom in the way that they bill. It, the technology starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah, and you see like some law firms are taking that initiative and saying like, hey, we will create these ALSPs. But some of them are kind of saying like, hey, we're not going to do the scale or do the investment, but, you know, we won't fight against using ALSPs. Sometimes we'll even bring them into the discussion. And I don't know if anyone else has anything else to add, but um, there was also an interesting piece that my colleague in New Jersey, he wrote about a group that isn't like an ALSP. They just kind of, um, I think they're based in Florida and they connect plaintiff's attorneys with uh, potential plaintiffs. And they reach out to them by, through email and everything like that. And just kind of saying like, hey, reach out to these plaintiffs, you know, you can maybe represent them. And this company, what is it, Consumer? Uh, Ambulancechaser.com or no? Oh. <laughs> Consumer um, Awareness Group. Um, they've been around since 2014. And they say, hey, you know, and they even apparently give you kind of, um, what is it? Uh, email. Oh, um, emails sent out, like they'll even send out emails to lawyers, like um, saying, talking about the perceived value of various types of mass tort cases, like, um, what is it? Uh, Roundup Weed Killer um, uses a Roundup. A weed killer they, that developed cancer, they could go for like $1,500 a piece. Clear, um, clergy sex abuse claimants cost $2,500. And, you know, just emailing quotes and just kind of saying like, hey, you might be interested and we can kind of, I don't know, it's like connect you or give you the names and you can maybe reach out to them and ask, do they need representation? And according to my colleague, he reached out to some ethics um advisors and they said that this could really go against a lot of ethics in like all the states. And they said like, okay, this organization has been around for like six years. So apparently they are able to like make money. There's interested lawyers. And they said, especially now during COVID-19 with so many courts that have limited services or they were shut down, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys, they need, you know, their business has kind of been, um, 
uh, they have less clients at this point because that some of the courts were closed down. And you might see some plaintiff's attorneys saying like, I'll start using the services so I can find people that actually need representation. So it's kind of interesting to see like, will there be increased usage? I don't think the organization said that it was, but it's kind of like the market right now, um, it might have some lawyers that may be a little more desperate to in, in use these types of um, platforms, which might run against like some ethical rules. So I thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, you know, the I mean, there's some there's some lawyers, especially the ones that advertise on TV full time or on, on the internet and whatnot, all they do is just advertise. And then, you know, once they get their leads, then they then they farm them out to, you know, lawyers that they know in specific states like, you know, that they work with or that they, um, you know, have arrangements with and whatnot. But but I guess that that's the individual law firm or the law practice or the lawyer taking the initiative. I I, I mean, I, I hadn't really heard of groups like this that, you know, are kind of third party. But I mean, one thing that I thought was interesting was that, you know, um, the part in the story where they were like, oh, well, we work with this law firm and then there's law firm like, no, they don't. So yeah. that, that might be, yeah, <laughs> I, I'd be interested to, to, to see how that goes. Yeah, there's kind of a model that the, go ahead. Nope, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say that was kind of a model that it, uh, a guy named Jim Sokolov in Boston pioneered many, many, many years ago of sort of, you know, advertising all over TV and billboards and everything to hire the law offices of Jim Sokolov. Yeah, and he, you, he hit his own catch. Jim, Jim never took a case himself. He never practiced law. I mean, for yeah. the most part, no, he did early yeah, on. I interviewed but, him. Yeah. I, I interviewed him. Yeah, I think, I think, I think he, um, yeah, he, he hit his own catchphrase and everything, but he, 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 he didn't actually try any of those cases. Yeah. Well, doesn't like every state, even though there are model rules, don't, don't the states all have different variations or many of them have different variations of when you can approach, um, a, a victim or a potential uh, plaintiff in a case like it can't be like you can't run up to a train wreck you know it's like one of the ones I remember right. uh, as an example and you know just start picking off being an ambulance chaser literally following an ambulance this seems a little close to that but you know depends yep. on I guess it would depend on how far removed from the the injury and some of these seem longer term and you're just finding class it sounds like you're finding classes yeah 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 and they've been around for like um seven years I kind of wonder and it kind of seems like they'll just like cold email people like lawyers and this is kind of like has there been anyone like um, the state bars like saying like, hey, you can't do that or anything like that? So maybe they told the line just enough where it's just kind of like this wouldn't go um, against ethical rules. I don't know, but it really it did seem interesting. And definitely in Philadelphia, we have those daytime when you're watching daytime TV, like during Judge Mathis or Judge Judy, and they'll have those lawyers saying, you know, we help you, we'll help you out with all your cases. And then like you'll see in tiny print, like they're like a referrals uh, service type of thing and you'll go to like another yeah. yeah, the, the whole referral service thing which you know you, you learn your professional responsibility there's limits to and are bad but I that was one of those few professional responsibility rules that I always heard and thought well that seems inefficient for the client uh, like why why wouldn't you think it's better to refer the work to somebody who's a better specialist um, it seemed like it was almost protectionist to force you into a one-stop all, you know, full service law firm rather than admit, Hey, I got some, I do tons of work with this person who does in trusts and estates. They have a litigation matter. Allow me to refer you to somebody else. Uh, but yeah, no, and, and I, hopefully there are places that have more liberal rules on that. Well, isn't, well you know, isn't I have, the, has uh, anybody seen the bar associations? More of them are posting their lists of lawyers by what they do. Um, and I, and I, I never understood why some of those were so closed, because that makes sense to me that an association especially would want to promote that their members work in these particular areas. Um, and it's not called referrals on there. It depends on the state. But some of these specialty bar associations are are really detailed like i was looking at one of these uh, matrimonial associations and they they have some i was looking for experts for sources and realized that oh as a, if i were looking for a lawyer to represent me this would be a great resource <laughs> and i hadn't seen that very much i and i'm kind of surprised that more bar groups don't do that yeah yeah isn't there isn't there a real ethical issue <clears throat> sort of uh you know, it's the same thing that Avo ran into when they had that legal referral system a few years ago because it, they weren't lawyers with a law firm. 
And so therefore they were splitting fees definitionally with a lawyer. And that was the, that's where they ran into trouble. So it's, it's interesting that there could be this group that is out finding plaintiffs that don't know, are they, are they a law firm or lawyers or, I don't know, that seems kind of odd. Yeah, and consumer awareness group, like they aren't lawyers and they just say like, we're highlighting like potential claimants, not clients, and just kind of like, you know, they may have litigation, that type of thing. So I guess they're trying to say they toe that line, but it's interesting and kind of like, I can definitely see in this time frame, like, you know, some lawyers, the work may have kind of dried up for them right now with some of the courts like being a little backlogged and just kind of like, will more go after, will use these types of services, so. Yeah, and it brings up some interesting issues. So, so if they're not getting a fee, a referral fee, but they're just sort of connecting people and they make their money by what advertisements from law firms or what have you. A law firm may pay them a marketing fee, maybe. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a maybe an interesting way around the. this somewhat silly ethical rule that you can't split a fee with a non-lawyer. Maybe somewhat is probably could be left out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's lots of, lots of uh, leeway around that, around that kind of antiquated rule. And, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of sites out there that are, that are making those connections. Uh, and I mean, generally they do refer to it as a marketing fee and I think that's supposed to make it okay. It's, it's essentially the same thing. Uh, one way or another, however you call the fee. But I don't, I haven't seen any bars uh, prosecuting uh, lawyers for violations of, of, uh, of that sort of fee sharing rule in a long time. I mean, you know, there were the cases with AVO, uh, and those have been many years past, and I haven't seen anything like that for quite a while. Yeah, it could be, uh, you know, it could be a real benefit, particularly to smaller plaintiffs firms that are trying to compete, you know, against the Morgan and Morgans of the world and yeah. trying to find these kind of clients. And and those smaller plaintiffs firms, they're having a lot of trouble, you know, uh, these days in trying to compete. So it, yeah. it could be a very good thing. I don't mean to imply it's a bad thing at all. I can say being down here in Florida, it sure feels like there are a lot of lawyers down here. It's like every billboard sign and every main street you walk down is full of law offices and uh, everywhere you look, there's an advertisement for a lawyer somewhere. It ain't, it ain't like Massachusetts. <laughs> Which is lawless. <laughs> Which is lawless. Yeah. No, we've got plenty of lawyers. They're just a little more, uh, what, discreet? I don't know. <laughs> Sort of some... talking earlier this week about lawyer advertising, and uh, that's a whole nother fun <laughs> topic right. with the web. <laughs> um, I don't think we have a lawyer advertising topic, but um, yeah, who yeah, wants to go it's next? Sort of, it's sort of lead, the, the, the whole court thing leads into your interesting story, Molly, in terms of the, the piece by Jason about digitizing the courts. That's sort of on sure, so, I've got a couple of things, but it's yours. I think yours is more on topic of what we just talked about. Um, so, Jason, I, I actually thought about it a couple of um, points back with uh, the the um, incubator approach with the with the founders. I, that um, one of the things that uh, Jason Tache is a long time um, writer in legal technology spaces spaces and access to justice, and he. Uh, uh, created a proposal for uh, remaking the courts, digitizing the court system, the state court system, and having the federal government take the lead. Um, and th- the day one project, which is an initiative of the National Federation of Scientists, um, took this on as a policy proposal. And so now day one helped them, helped Jason uh, formulate this into an actual federal uh, policy and uh, published it on their site. Uh, and I'll, I'll post a link in a second. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting proposal. At first I had sticker stock because he, it, the number didn't change, it's a billion dollars. Um, but it's a, meant to be kind of a one-time, uh, once in a generation expense uh, for the federal government to get this started for the states and to help the states develop uh, better 
digitize and upgrade their systems, uh, which would create a ton of efficiencies. So I thought this was, I thought it was really interesting that it got picked up. It was a few weeks ago, uh, but I, um, it kept getting pushed, pushed down on my, uh, my list of things to mention, uh, but I thought it was really interesting. And I think it's, it's kind of picking up interest since it's been published um, on day one. Is it for, I mean, just when, when I, I, I didn't have a chance to look at it in detail, but the, what hit me was the enormity of it. <laughs> um, and that's an enormous number. When they say digitizing, are they going to start with, like, how, how, do, do you have an insight into how that, like in the, in the UK, there's been inroads into digitizing the courts and they started with criminal, they, they've made more progress. And also, it, I'm curious about what digitizing really means, because obviously it can mean different things you know um but but have they said have they clarified what they mean you know what what their objective is in terms of you know they're going to do the whole gamut or what are they going to focus on a particular thing to start with it's it's aimed at access at access to justice uh so you know you're really kind of bringing in some uniformity to the the state court system uh so in in a way that is replicable so that the idea is that you don't have every jurisdiction in every state creating something different. Um, instead, you have a federal model that can help states get this get started uh, and and um, and work from and replicate uh, projects from there. That's my understanding. The more I dig into it, the more I feel like I thought that a billion was a lot of money, and now I feel like that's probably. Um, a low ball <laughs> right i mean it just seems a huge so they're having what they're doing is they're creating a franchise like a cool franchise <laughs> i don't know that jason would have put it that way but i kind of wonder if that's that's maybe <laughs> well, well, so what was it that ever yeah, yeah. there's like a billion here and a billion there and pretty soon you're talking about real money or whatever uh that was uh Erickson. That was uh, Illinois Senator yeah, Erickson, right? Erickson, yeah. 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 No, I mean, or Dirksen, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I was speaking to somebody about analytics the other day and um, they focus on analytics at the state level, which obviously, so you, we talk about um, the stuff that Lexus is doing, which typically, I know they're moving more to state, but they has typically been focused more at the federal level and so the state. It'd be interesting to see, and it's very early days, <laughs> but it'd be interesting to see whether, you know, what kind of intelligence people start to get and whether that starts to open up more analytics in terms of what the states are doing. What, what, what the courts are doing at state level, rather. So, so it's my understanding that some of this is more focused on, um, some of what Jason's proposing is more focused on um, the policy development and standardization. Uh, so, and my only concern about that, other than the Wild West isn't helping anyone right now, um, is that um, the federal government isn't known for yeah. being super efficient. Uh, I know there's a regular attendee on this. Uh, oh. Right. Well, there we go. There we've lost Bob. Um, we've lost Bob for now. Either that or he's, that or he's <laughs> got a piece of amazement. <laughs> and, and let's be fair. Like when you say the Wild West isn't helping anybody, but it's absolutely helping established lawyers who try to keep other people from getting justice. Like we're doing a great job of that. That is true. So I mean, I mean, look, you know, like, Mo like Molly and I know Jason pretty well. I mean, you know, I wouldn't put anything... I wouldn't put anything past him. I mean, and I mean that in a good way. Like, I mean, he's once he puts it, when he puts his mind yeah. to something, he's very capable. Um, this, you know, I mean, I whenever, I hear, other... whenever I hear federal government creating standards for all the states to follow, yeah, first thing I think of is, it. oh God, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, lost. I mean, we see. Are you live? Or are you not a cat? I, I need to. Oh, you're back. You're back. You're back. I didn't even know I was gone. I could see and hear everything, so oh, I just lost of, it. We, we were sort of were you talking the whole time? I was talking. Yeah. I, I. Well, what I was saying is, I know that there's somebody who attends this roundtable every week from the National Center for State Courts, and I, Jim McMillan is, I think, on today, and I don't know if he has any insights on on this, but it seems to me that one of the issues with with Jason's proposal is is ultimately is getting all the states to to buy into this kind of common universal approach. I mean, they should do that at some point, but it seems like a, 
a long ways away before we get to that because they're you already currently using so many different formats and systems and uh uh, I think ideally and ultimately we will move toward a sort of a common data format, but it seems like a long ways off. Yeah. Lovely. Do you want to hear my M&A story? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I do. Um, Jim, do you want to do you want to say something? Do you want to add anything? Oh, he, he just responded um, in the chat. Oh, hey, Jim. Sorry about that. <laughs> Bob sounded like a blunt Cylon. <laughs> why don't you why don't you go ahead caroline <laughs> sorry to just go hey do you want me to talk about me instead of james apologies um yeah so we well, wait 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 i i want to i want to clarify because not i realize not everyone's going to see this through this uh this format <laughs> so we should clarify that dennis kennedy just said in the chat that right. for a moment bob sounded like a drunk cylon from <laughs> battlestar galactica which is an incredibly accurate depiction assuming we're talking about the first classic Battlestar Galactica. And oh, I think it's important that we make sure that the future listeners to this <laughs> understand that that just happened. Dennis, By all means, no. go on. Dennis, what have you done? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so um, it's interesting. So we, we were given a sneak peek um, at some M&A tables that are out. Um, it's a um, guy called Raymond, um, and I'm going to murder his surname, Bleed, who's um, he's based in Amsterdam. He's previously worked at Waters Clue. I called him a data wizard. <laughs> um, and they, he's, his company is called Legal Complex, um, and they've launched um, some easy access, easily accessible dashboards for people to look at um, what's going on in the sector. Um, and we got the first look at some M&A tables, which... The results are really incredible um, in terms of the number of both the volume of um, legal tech M&A and also the value. So just reading it from, I'll post the link. Um, yeah, the tables actually we got we've sort of got um, so we've got some of the information, but you do it is it is under a paywall. But then, so the tables show that um, the total value of um, disclosed legal tech investments is up 147 percent in the past year. So since the end of 2019. And the volume is up 31%. Um, so, and then just to drill down into that a bit more. So the number of deals, so January 2020, January this year, um, the number of legal tech deals disclosed um, was 19 um, compared with nine in the, in the last year. It's just really interesting. It just shows what we're all seeing, which is, you know, that the sector is of huge interest to private equity and also just consolidation and whatever it might be um but the, and then just lastly the biggest deal i'd forgotten how big it was but um so it was uh the caravate um caravate analytics uh acquisition of cpa Glo global for 6.7 billion um and also and i suppose the other last last thing is that most of the acquisitions are in the contract space which i don't think any of us will be particularly surprised about um but yeah i just thought that was interesting and i'll post the I'll paste the, the link in the chat. Yeah, that is interesting and goes with like what we've all been seeing over the past like 12 months, even with COVID-19. I was kind of worried like, yeah, would like people still want to invest in legal tech of all things kind of. But you've seen like I remember talking to legal tech investors in like April or late March and they said, no, of course, like maybe this quarter it may cool down a little bit activity just because people are getting acclimated to like um, working from home and not being able to take flights. But it's still like the market is still there and it still needs efficiency and, um, you know, the demand for becoming more efficient and using technology is still there and kind of like we still seen that traction with like uh, company legal tech companies being acquired or gaining um, investments that demand still isn't going away. So it is interesting. And of course, like contracts and like analytics and management and collection, that's still a big deal. And kind of like, you know, we see those companies gaining a lot of traction and also like practice management and everything. So yeah. I'm kind of surprised, even though investors that I spoke to, they said, no, I don't see it calming down like the investments and just kind of like shows this is a market where that need is still there. And investors are saying like, hey, this is some place that we can invest and get, um, get a profit back from, so. And they have to, they've had to. So with, for example, the contract space, so where, where we've had COVID and we've all, it's all, everything's been, they've been forced, people have been forced to digitize, right? So, so I think that there's, we've seen, um, 
it's, it's it, yeah I, don't, I think there's not been I'm not surprised that there's not been a, a drop off um, and it seems like the pipeline um, it seems like the pipeline is just pr predicted to continue in the same way which is quite interesting yeah and I've always wondered what these investments are like the actual like legal community actually using these products and everything and with COVID-19 and working from home I think it's kind of like you can't do the same same well for the most part I don't think you can still have the same process as you would for mm -hmm. like you know putting together a contract having it signed and everything like that when everyone was back in the office and kind of like you have to go be more in like the 21st century about how like you um, maintain, you know, start your contracts, have it signed, go reviewing it and everything like that. So kind of like COVID-19 accelerated um, that tech, um, that adoption. And I think like the investments to me make a little bit more sense because yeah. you actually have the market. They're actually acting like this is 21st century and not ignoring technology. 100% the culture, the culture is the biggest Definitely. shift in a way, isn't it? The culture is the fascinating thing, you know, that there was always sort of the blocker in the past. Um, and now everyone's like, you're sure I'm getting depositions on Zoom? Um, and then just, I've got one quick one. So, so um, I didn't talk about Microsoft for legal. I'll perhaps do that next week because this is more relevant. So, so um, we, I managed this week did um, a published a study, which was the, uh, looked into the, oh, it was a Forrester um, consulting study, which looked at ROI. And again, I, I do, I'd say that's relevant because, um, you know, we, we, it sort of drills down. There's been a lot of talk about technology and, and um, growth of technology and all of this kind of stuff, but we don't really see that many vendors really publishing deep studies into our ROI and adoption. So I just thought it was worth a shout out. I'll post that link as well. Um, and kind of sort of, I'm quite a fan of this idea of more vendors. We, we keep meaning to do a lot more deep dives into ROI and adoption and hopefully still will do that. But actually I think maybe the idea of vendors themselves commissioning their own reports is to be commended. I don't know what anyone else thinks about it. I'll put the link as well. Well, you always have to look at them. You always have to be a little bit dubious when you look at some of those vendor commission reports. I haven't seen the one you're talking about, but uh, that's interesting. You said it. This is Forrester, right? And I, when I first looked at it, yeah. I must have been like, and I didn't write about it straight away. And then, but then I started having conversations, um, and there seems to be a big appetite for it. The, there's been good response on LinkedIn. I know what you mean. And I, I, yeah, so, so I, yeah, so I, I had the same thought process, um, especially the, the, the ROI is so high and the savings, the time savings are so high. Um, but I mean, there seems to be a demand, you know, it seems to have been really well received. It's, it's independent. Um, I don't know how with those, like something like Forrester, whether you could, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts? I'm not, I'm not really sure. My first, I was cynical, but now I'm a fan. So when I was doing this as a publisher of a legal magazine and accepting uh, studies like this, you know, I, they would be labeled um, either as advertising or, um, you know, as white papers that are sponsored or something like that. Um, and they were still, the content was still, no matter what types of disclosures we put on them, were still really popular. And I think that, you know, as long as they're, they offer some insights, they're great, but that I would rely on, you know, a victor or, you know, to, to put some context around it and, and um, add some critical reporting to, to the, to the, to the pieces. Yeah. But I, as, in general, I think a lot of these, these vendor created or vendor commissioned pieces are, are pretty interesting. Yeah. So Dan, that's that's what's funny about it is readers like that stuff. Yeah. They really like it. They really like it. And I, I spoke to Dan Carmel, who's the CMO of iManage, and, and um, it was actually after the fact I'm probably going to do a follow-up piece because I, I didn't have a chance before. You know, these reports, sometimes we just need a bit more notice, people. <laughs> so um, I had a conversation after the event and um, started drilling down into the numbers a little bit more. Um, and yeah, I mean, it does seem, you know, it's, it's quite impressive. And Dan O'Day says that these they charge around 40K for the studies. I think they're valuable. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Molly, that you could class them as advertising. I can see why. And I'm part of me just, you know, I don't know, part of me inherently just goes, oh, I just didn't touch that. But 
everyone everyone is it's got a lot of traction on linkedin so well so I, and i meant oh. by advertising is if they publish them themselves you know if it's if it's their uh, publishing in you know on yeah. on your platform but if you're reporting uh, on it and adding context then that's different you know and i and yeah you know you would add some add, add some other studies or related you know pieces well, and there, there was like, I know, I'm trying to remember, there was a piece a couple of years ago I wrote about when uh, and it was Case Text hired some outside firm to compare, you know, how fast a lawyer could complete a research assignment on Case Text versus Lexus. And uh, it was sort of interesting. Uh, and my, my attitude was a little bit, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reporting, you know, what this study found. And it was purportedly an independent study, but it was financed by Case Text and they set up all the parameters of it. And, uh, but I, I remember I put some language in my blog piece to sort of emphasizing this fact that it was paid for by case text. And therefore, you had to sort of take that into account in, uh, in evaluating the results. And I got so much crap from case text about that. Uh, you, but, know, you know, the last time I was on the show, I missed a couple, but we were doing those uh, rants and raves. And my rant was going to be uh see all these articles, particularly in the COVID uh, uh, area, and about, you know, study finds that uh, COVID, COVID vaccines cause two heads to grow. And there's all this big headline, you read all the way through it, and you get down to the bottom and it says, oh, by the way, this study has not been peer reviewed. <laughs> and, you know, I can remember, I mean, particularly in the courtroom, even studies that are peer-reviewed are subject to attack, but ones that are not peer-reviewed, I mean, I could do a study on on the effect of the COVID vaccine and announce something and put it out there and get it published. And But that brings me to the, to the, to the point that you guys are making, and that is, you know, in our world that we deal with, there is no peer-reviewed other than us, I guess. And uh, lots of these studies come out and I'm probably guilty of sort of running with the results sometimes without really sitting down and digging into the study itself, how they did it, how many people were sampled, who was sampled, what were the questions that were asked. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of room if we're not careful, particularly as, as journalists, and I use that term very broadly if I throw myself in there, uh, particularly in this space, to, to be questioning of some of these studies, whether it's a vendor or not a vendor, because, I mean, you know, without a peer-reviewed process, anybody could study anything and announce it, and there we go. So, now I don't have to do yeah. a rant, because I just did. Yeah, that could be your rant. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think because it's, there is an independence for the nature of Forrester, but then they do pay. I don't know. I'm confused about it, but they, I, I mean, the questions they, they did do this. So they spoke to six different organizations and hundreds of people, and they created a, a, a sort of a framework of, of um, to make sure that it was quite sort of a different size, sort of representative, representative of, of different size organizations. And they seem to put, when you look into how they did it, seem to be very thoughtful in terms of um, trying to make sure that the results weren't skewed and this kind of thing. What, what would have happened if, if the results have been crap, I guess? <laughs> That's the interesting thing, right? And, and I suppose you would want to say, well, they, they should, they should, but they're not going to, they're not going to report the crap stuff. So but the results are, you know, I, they seem to have drilled down pretty deep. They, they spoke to a ton of people um, and they looked at productivity. They, yeah. They, they, they analyze and show how they came to, how they, they, they deep, take a fairly deep dive into how they've come to their ROI. And, you know, part of it, too, is how you ask the question, because if I have a result in mind, I can frame the question in a way that will get to the result that I want to get to. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I'm, you know, reasonably careful, it's like, you know, cross-examining a witness, you know, (laughs) you know, you know what you want to get him or her to say. So you frame the question a certain way. And uh, so it's just kind of an interesting area, I think, for for all of us in this community, you know, because there's so many of these studies out there, they come out all the time. And, uh, you know, I, as I say, I'm as guilty as anybody. I don't sometimes don't dig into what was really done enough to know how valid or not valid they are. We we don't normally, sorry, Bob. Good. Sorry. We we don't normally, you know, I mean, quite often are on the side of not running with it but I think because the specific topic of ROI is of interest to me I thought it was you know really jumped out because I really wanted to flag that I mean I don't know whether I'm 
just not looking in the right places but I don't really see I feel that that for me was the biggest thing I'm like actually encourage that you know like and then and then you're right I think we need to get better at interrogating the results but I feel like more more vendors should be doing this that I suppose that was my kind of angle as it were yeah what I was going to say is oh yeah go for it I I was just going to say that I I think uh, what often happens with these vendor uh, sponsored reports is the, the the part the place you have to really be kind of skeptical is the way they spin it. I mean, sometimes the the data that they're collecting is interesting and it seems to be done in some legitimate way, but they always seem to manage to spin it at the end to favor whatever product they happen to have. So you know they might do a study of uh, e billing practices among corporate legal departments. Uh, it just so happens they have uh, an e billing platform, uh, and uh, you know they spin it at the end to say the conclusion is that uh, corporate legal departments need a, a platform that does exactly what we do. Um, so you know, and I so I think you can make you can use the data and get an interesting story out of it without necessarily buying into the their ultimate conclusion or the way they spin it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say um, the point you made, Caroline, about how what happens if it's bad results and they may not come out is actually kind of the huge, the, the big part of a lot of this, because I think there's always good positive data that comes out of funded reports, but then you don't see the bad stuff. And it goes to that old, uh, archeology span like maxim that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, right? Like that, that, that like, just because you can't find something doesn't mean it's untrue. And there's probably a lot of corporation funded research that we just don't get the benefit of knowing because they have no obligation to get it. Um, I assume though, I do not know, but I assume we knew that cigarettes were harmful way back in the thirties, but who, but like we never heard about it. And that's the kind of thing that is always in the back of your mind whenever you applaud some industry research. And yeah, and I guess we should encourage, you know, I feel like if, if it's, it's, it's almost a quick quick thing or whatever but that we should if they're celebrating the the positive perhaps we should encourage the, the obligation to disclose the stuff that is like the learning right you go do you know what if i'm going to help you celebrate all of the you know, this, this actually why don't you share some of the less positive results because actually that's not necessarily a failure right and actually that's probably where the end user would get the most value going okay so everyone's having a problem with that and actually for, for both you know i don't i think that's where <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not necessarily, I think that's where we see these, I mean, if it's complete failure, I can, that may be, but, you know, there's certain results which, by showing them, it wouldn't be yeah. failure. Does that make sense? And and they have that data, and that's what they, that's what a lot of them use to develop products. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a, it's a question of, well, how do I release this without um, giving up my competitive advantage in developing a product? that this is a you know i found this to be a pain point and we're going to work on solving it as part of our research and development you know that's a that's another part of you know doing this research there's a reason a lot of these some of these especially deeper funded vendors do this type of research it's also for research and development for their own product development um but speaking of what vendors want victor do you want to talk about the manifesto yeah, sure. I, uh, I, I said this. I thought this was interesting. I guess this has been in the works for since December, but they released it uh, this week. Uh, so Matt Holman, someone I think most of us know, um, you know, he brought together a bunch of vendors who I guess were dissatisfied with the way um, things have been going at uh, for them at um, at uh, the virtual uh, legal conferences and what legal tech conferences and whatnot, not not being not being able to get a return on investment uh, for their products and just overall finding the atmosphere very you know difficult for them and like not very not very um uh yeah not very uh, conducive for for their purposes but then also kind of maybe seeing how how they could possibly improve things and whatnot so they came up with this manifesto that i thought was interesting um and i was just wondering what way all yeah, like what because because it's something that we've talked about on on this show a lot about you know what um you know what what are what are conferences going to look like going you know going forward you know is it, is it going to be just everything back to normal or is it going to be some kind of you know, hybrid between, you know, uh, virtual and, and, and live. And then, you know, they, I think, I think one thing that, that, that they were very big on was they wanted to be considered like a, like an equal partner as far as like coming up with, you know, coming up with a game plan for, for, for how things are going to look going forward and wanting to be like more involved in planning conferences, but also making sure that, you know, they get value out of it and, 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 and attendees get value out of it. So, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, I mean, I mean, with these manifestos, it's always hard to kind of gauge 
you know, like how effective they'll be because a lot of it, a lot of it is obviously aspirational. But but just you know, it, it touches on a lot of things that we that we've been talking about and a lot of things that we've been kind of wondering ourselves. So I was just I, I just thought it was interesting. Anyone? Yeah, I was just like glancing over like some of the bullet points that they um, suggested of kind of like improving um, the virtual conferences, especially for vendors. And I do like the idea of kind of like offering discounts in exchange for engagement in data, you know, kind of like encouraging people, because I know when I go to these conferences, I don't necessarily it's not like I'm physically going somewhere. So there's no real pressure for me or any push for me to go to the vendors and walk the floor and just look at the products there and speak to people there. Um, and I think kind of like encouraging, I think they maybe had one part where they mentioned when um, people leave sessions um, that they maybe like see like the vendors or, you know, um, like a mini vendor hall where they might be exposed to solutions and that type of thing, like encouraging more people to actually go to the vendors. I think they need to like rechange that and not just have like a tab on the side of a website and say, hey, these are the vendors that are participating. So I think like encouraging that and maybe, you know, enticing us a little bit more and not necessarily forcing, but maybe putting vendors a little bit more like their, um, them kind of like in our face a little bit more, not to the point where it's annoying and I feel like I'm being spammed, but just kind of like saying, hey, they're here and, you know, they want to talk their, about their product or maybe to help you. Well, since Nikki's yep. not here, I, I will take up for her cause, and that is we just need avatars. You know, that's all we need. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well the, done. The, 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 the conference that I went to where we had the avatars, I really enjoyed that one more than anyone that I've been to, quite honestly. It was, it was really fun, and maybe because it was just so different, but it was fun. <laughs> You know, in fairness, one of the things that we're talking about at Above the Law internally is this non-event that we're thinking putting off, which putting on, which is kind of <laughs> based off. around the yeah, what you putting on, blah, yeah, but uh, putting on. Well, in some ways, putting off. If it's a non-event, why is it also putting off? But uh, what we're trying to do with it is do something that foregrounds exhibitors rather than makes them a sideshow to different little events. And so we, you know, we've been playing around with it and we're putting some stuff together and uh, that's, but a lot of these ideas that you're talking about here are like part of what's happening internally in our uh, discussions, because we're hoping for something that can make, give value to the exhibitors more so than um, because other shows are doing great content. Uh, we want to like do something that can show the exhibitors out there and put them in the spotlight, but also draw people in. And so, you know, it's been a, it's been an interesting thought experiment. It's like one of those situations where if we were all physically together, we would be in front of a whiteboard all the time. Like what if we did this and that? So we'll see. Um, hopefully that works out. Uh, but that's, do you remember when I spoke at the skills, the KM? Um, oh my God. Wait, uh, sorry about that. All right. Did you get a hams or what is that? But, uh, I, got a, I got a frosty drink. There we go. Table service, huh? That's Thank you. So, oh, actually, Caroline, I don't think you were here when you learned, when, when we all learned that this is the official hams beer appreciation conference. Oh, really? That's what we do here. So. I think Just this so is you know, given. all right. I think this is given. But so sorry. So when I spoke at um, the Skills Knowledge Management Conference, and I think I came on straight after that, sort of ranting and raving about. But they used this platform called Shindig, um, and they didn't. They avoided that awful exhibitor hall scenario, which is just nobody wants to go to. And and um, they had all of the sponsors just mingling within Shindig. Um, I won't go on about it because I went on about it enough at the time. <laughs> um, but there, you know, you could jump in in the same way as sponsors would want to network within a group of people then you could just do that within shindig i don't know did you did you joe look at are you looking at some kind of like networking group in groups type platform or i suppose you probably can't say we we're looking at a lot of things uh, a lot of this is above my pay grade uh, a lot of this is our uh, wonderful business team that a lot of you all who listen to this show at least or participate in this show actively i know there are many more listeners out there who listen to it later but the people who participate actively um all know those folks but uh, so there's a lot of decisions being made at their level that we have input to but don't necessarily 
uh, control. Uh, but yeah, we looked at a lot of things and I suggest a lot of things and Nikki's not here, but I suggested avatar. Like well, there we, I, I did my part is all I'm saying. Do you think that there are going to be, so with legal week, there were some really good actual commercials that, um, that yeah. were actually pretty effective. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if vendors are starting to invest in some of those short, but effective and impactful commercial approaches because that, you know, that's, that's a really seems to me expensive, but easy way to work into a virtual um, conference. Huh? It's almost like somebody, somebody might've suggested, Hey, a way to do this is to tell a bunch of people to put together reasonably short and concise commercials and we could air all those. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, it, no, exactly. I thought it was a vi- I, and I said this back in October, I thought that was the way in which people could like have a exhibitor hall-esque experience, but in a virtual world. And, uh, you know, they, I thought Legal Week did a good job of having some of those, but not like a ton. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that that is a very valuable uh, investment for people to be making right now. Sounds like the Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh, well, right. It should I mean, be. It, no, 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 no. Tom Brady doesn't have any involvement in any of this. <laughs> and my unbiased opinion is Legal Week here is the Super Bowl of Legal Tech. So that's just my unbiased opinion. Just totally unbiased. <laughs> you should be debuting the, you know, the premium campaigns at, at these big conferences. So. Well, we're gonna have like, the last time I attended uh, legal. Week, the last time I attended Legal Week in person, I guess it was still Legal Tech. Uh, legal Tech at that point. Uh, Tiki Barber was. Um, was was on the expo hall uh, floor signing autographs for uh, for for people uh, charging obviously, but you know signing autographs for people. So you know, I, I, actually, I don't think he was on the Super Bowl jet team for the Giants. So I don't know if that. I no, know. no, he retired the year before. Uh, yeah. So. I was going to say for for uh, tech show, we're going <laughs> to do the startup alley this year. There you and, go. The uh, the way we're doing it, it's going to be the opening. It, the, the pitch competition will be the opening event for ABA Tech Show, but we're, we're just... Uh-oh. Uh, Fantastic. This is perfect timing. Oh, so perfect in, about, timing. in about 10 minutes, he'll come back and tell video. us what we're he having meant. All the presenters just record it to him, and uh, that's it. So. Yeah. I'm here. Monica, I just can't talk. You are not a cat. Monica said Ilticon, so that's going to be fun. I I so hope that I can get always, always, always Ilticon. So, do we have time uh, to do rants and raves, or can we do um, um, Joe's Joe's Jones Day I, story? I first? can make it a rant. I can make it a okay, rant, and awesome. people can comment if they want. Um, hey, Jones Day got hacked, everybody. Um, at least as far as we can tell, uh, people are posting their documents on the dark web uh, and asking folks if they want to if Jones Day wants to pay a ransom or they will publish all the rest of them. And uh, we've talked about ransomware on this show before. Uh, but yeah, Jones Day of all firms has now apparently been hacked. They are not really releasing statement. They said something kind of vague about how, oh, we were hit through this one attack. Uh, multiple cybersecurity experts reached out to me and said that that statement doesn't make any sense, that the kind of attack they say they were hit in is not something that actually fits with reality. Um, who, who knows, but they are the experts, not me. And uh, yeah, so that's happening. So I put this out as a rant or rave situation because I am not taking a stance on whether or not someone being hacked, sad, uh, is a is a rant or that Jones Day getting hacked is a rave. Go on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I will I will say that part of me um was tempted to download what is the onion or whatever the, the browser is just Ooh. just just to see what those documents were. But uh, I, I figured now that that could lead me down the, the rabbit hole. I'll come on next week. I'll be all they're not good. They're I'll, not yeah, good I'll, yet. Yeah uh, I'll be I'll, yeah I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll be all like QAnon and I'll be all like you know you know, wearing tinfoil and stuff. So I thought maybe I should should just avoid it. Right now, right now, it's um, it's like uh, cover letters and drafts and stuff, which which raises questions of like, where are these documents? Which you know, if they're may, maybe they just grabbed some random like document management stuff, and they don't really have the in you know, I'm not going to say incriminating when I'm talking about Jones Day. No, that's not what I'm going to say. Um, not 
not embarrassing emails uh, from Jones Day. They, it's not like they necessarily have those or any of the like, you know, compensation stuff where they like pay people who like, you know, beat children bunch of, bunch of money. Point is, I, what what gets me about it though is in a and this is the tech angle uh, in a world where we've like moved a lot of document management to maybe everything should be in one home. Uh, maybe we should be indexing our in emails and our uh, documents that we're working on and our filings and everything all in one place. I mean, I don't know the technics of how people steal things, but these days, maybe I, like I, you, if in my day I would have said, oh, they just have cover letters. That means it wasn't that big a deal. They just got like the drafts. They don't really have the, the juice that is our email conversations, but now who knows? So we'll see. We don't, we don't have time to go into this, but we should definitely readdress this because post solar winds. So there's a big conversation about the sophistication yep. of law firms and dealing with supply chain, all of this kind of stuff. We should definitely address that another time. And, and like my that. topics generally we should put earlier because you never know how many of <laughs> these. Yeah, we should have talked about that earlier. <laughs> That's actually way more interesting. <laughs> Cheers. Well, <laughs> it's the top of the hour, um, but I think we might have Bob back. Maybe. Do you want to? Do you want to close us out? I, I don't think it's safe for me to try and talk. So, uh, thank you, Molly, for hosting. I appreciate it. Well, Molly. All right. We'll start rants and raves earlier um, when Bob has a better connection. <laughs> See you next right. week. Thanks, Bye, guys. everyone. Bye, Bye. guys. Bye.